Hello, I'm Brad Riley, and you're listening to Forming the Spirit Within, a podcast where you'll find such things as in-depth Bible studies, some classes I teach on a variety of spiritual matters, as well as some conversations I want to have with you and others along the way, all of which I hope will inspire you to a deeper life in Jesus Christ. In his second Corinthian letter, St. Paul the Apostle described our lives as a process of transformation that comes to us by looking full into the face of Jesus. And as we behold His glory, we are transformed into His glorious likeness in ever-increasing measure. What an amazing thought, that we can be transformed into the very glory of Jesus. That is my prayer for you, that in some small way this podcast will help you in your transformation from glory into even greater glory, as Christ forms His Spirit within you. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and not only listen, but join in on the conversation with a question or a comment. Thanks so much for listening, and may the Lord be with you. Good morning, everyone. We are going to begin chapter two of the letter to the First Thessalonians. Uh, that we're studying First and Second Thessalonians, and we're still in chapter, still in book one, which is First Thessalonians. But we're going to begin chapter two today. As we begin, let's uh, take out our prayer cards and let's ask the Lord's illumination for us before we study Scripture. I love this prayer. It just speaks so beautifully and eloquently about God enlightening us to hear from Him as we study. Let's pray. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live, both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise together with our Father, who is from everlasting and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, it is nearing the Christmas time. It is the, you know, this this whole season of Advent goes by so fast. It is uh, this, you know, I just can't, can't believe how fast it goes. Year after year, quicker and quicker, so... Um, we'll keep a watch out for our schedule because the the week Christmas is on. Is it a Wednesday this year? Mm-hmm. Does anybody remember? Yeah. I don't have a calendar in front of me, so so that obviously that day after Christmas we won't meet, and so that throws us to New Year's. We'll probably just take two weeks off for the holidays, not meet the day after Christmas, not meet the day after New Year's. So. Um, Keep alert to that. I'll try and make sure that they write that in the church bulletin as well. But uh, today, we want to begin chapter 2. Now, in chapter 2, while the apostle is teaching many things, of course, he specifically, we learn a lot about how pastors are to minister in churches and how the churches should function as ministries. There's a, there's a lot to be said for, if you remember in the overview, I told you there's five things that we're going to learn through these two books. And the first one last week out of chapter one, the first three, took us three weeks on chapter one, but that first thing that we wanted to look at was how the church was called to evangelize around the world and how pastors are called to evangelize. But in this one, we look deeply at the ministry of the church, and it begins with chapter two and it'll carry into chapter three. So there's kind of a section there that goes beyond the borders of just the chapters. But I want to begin with just reading the first, uh, well, it's actually only about, I don't know that we'll get through all of it, but we'll read it all in one setting. It's 20 verses long in this, in this chapter, I believe. So let's try and read through those 20 verses. Um, Am I right on that? I don't have it right in front of me here. Let me turn it over. Yeah. Okay. So let's go ahead. And mine's broken into sections here. But let's start with start with verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. 
For you yourselves know, brethren, that our visit to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the face of great opposition. For our appeal does not spring from error or uncleanness, nor is it made with guile. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never used either words of flattery, as you know, or a cloak for greed, as God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, whether from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nurse taking care of her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember our labor and toil, brethren. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden on any of you, while we preached to you the gospel of God. Your witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our behavior to you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to lead a life worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus, which are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all men by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. Since we were bereft of you, brethren, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And that's the fullness of chapter 2. This sounds like a defense. Paul is making a defense. Remember the story here. He had to leave Thessalonica in a hurry. In fact, in the middle of the night. Because there was such an outrage and such a, an uproar about this new Christian community by Judaizers and others in the community that were kind of whipped up against them as a mob. And so they left, and they, him and Silvanus and, and uh, Timothy all went to Berea. And we know that this letter was written back because it's been maybe six months. We don't know exactly how long, but it's certainly only been months, not years. And he's writing back to hear how they're doing because he had sent Timothy. He tells them right here in this letter he wanted to go. He really wanted to go bad, but he wasn't able to. Satan had hindered him. We'll get to a little more of that later. But that he actually sent Timothy so that Timothy could check things out and come back. And he came back with good news. And that good news was that they were keeping the faith. But, as we learn in chapter 2, there's all kinds of bad things being said about Paul and Silvanus and Timothy and Jesus Christ and the church. They're there's saying some horrible things. And so what Paul is doing here is he's writing a defense. It's kind of an apology, if you will. Um, it, it, it's been called by theologians and, and uh, scholars the uh, apologia pro vita sua, which means a defense of life and conduct. Okay, this, It's pretty amazing that 
Paul is defending. He's defending himself not because he feels guilty of anything, but he's defending himself for their benefit. Because what's happening is apparently some of the people are believing these lies and these things that are being spread about Paul. So what is it? What are they saying? Well, when we look at the first several verses, let's kind of break it down a little bit together here. Uh, he, he says in the first, I don't know, the first several, uh, at least the first uh, seven, six verses, I count, and you could count it differently, but I'm coming out with at least eight different things, about eight different things that have been wrongfully said about Paul Christ or his ministry. Let's think about what they are here. These are some of them. It's been said that his ministry had no effect. Imagine that. No effect. Okay? It says here, um, and he, he says in verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamelessly treated at Philippi, as you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in, in great opposition. Um, so he's, he's being opposed. He's reminding them he had great courage. He did this. He declared the gospel out of great courage. Uh, he, uh, it says here that his appeal, he says, our appeal didn't spring from any error or uncleanness. Clearly, he wouldn't say it was from error or uncleanness, not from that, unless people had charged that there must have been his erroneous teachings, his defiled or unclean teachings. Why, why, would, why would that be a charge against Paul, that it was unclean? What, what, is, what do you think that means, that his charge was unclean? Remember that one of the most uh, hotly debated things uh, in Gentile territories was when the Jews who had come there, obviously before the Christians, the Jews uh, had had uh, dietary laws, ceremonial laws, the Mosaic law, and there was clean and unclean. Well, one of the things that Paul preaches continually is liberty in Christ, freedom in Christ. And so he teaches you don't have to keep the Mosaic dietary laws. And so the people are accused of being unclean. So Paul's teachings are accused of being unclean, that he's spreading uncleanness. Uh, and so I, you can see him here countering that. Uh, he says, nor was it made with guile. What is guile? When you hear the word guile, what is that? Bitterness. Sort of, Deceit. maybe even. Deceitful? Yeah. I mean, if they're accusing Paul of spreading the gospel deceitfully, I mean, that's a pretty low blow. You know, that, that's a pretty low blow. And some of the other things he says seem to uh, to build upon that. As he says, it was not made with guile, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so also we speak to you not to please men, but to please God. He's saying, how could, how could we have been deceitful among you when we're trying to please God? And, and I'll prove it to you, he's basically saying. We didn't try to please you. We didn't try to please men. We didn't try to please ourselves as men because we didn't even take anything from you. That's one of the things he says here. He's kind of building his case bit by bit. He says, um, we never used words of flattery, as you know, or a cloak for greed. He's saying, he's saying to them, remember our speech, the way we, remember the way we talked to you. We didn't just flatter you and, you know, and try to build you up and maybe then you'd give us a little better pay or something. None of that. We didn't, because he's saying we didn't use a cloak. We didn't use words, our words as a cloak for greed. In other words, he didn't take money from them. As he goes on, we hear just a little bit more about that. Uh, look in verse 9. He says there, you remember that our labor and our toil... We worked night and day that we would not be a burden to you. So he's been accused of being uh, of no effect. He's been accused of, of not being bold. He's been accused of, of deluding them and being deceitful. He's been accused of impure motives, uh, of greed. 
empty flattery. These are all things that I'm pulling out of there, using the gospel as kind of a pretext for greed. I mean, what horrible things to say about an evangelist, a preacher like Paul, a sincere person. And the fact that some of the people are weak, they're weak in their faith, they're brand new, they're baby Christians. And some of them are maybe starting to believe it, and that he knows will kill the church. That will divide the church, and it will unsettle it. So he, this letter becomes very, very important to remind them. He has to remind them of everything he did for them. Now, I want to think in context of why was it so important that Paul make the point, we weren't greedy, we weren't deceitful. You can't say we used our words to build our own names or our own pocketbooks, line our pocketbooks. In fact, we worked day and night to support ourselves, basically. So you wouldn't have, we wouldn't want to be a burden on you. Why is that important? Because listen to what he says here in verse 6. The end of verse 6, look what he said. We didn't seek glory from men, whether from you or from anyone else in the community though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. What is Paul saying? What's he saying there? It would have been entirely appropriate to ask for more. Would have been, he was an, as an apostle of Christ, you're right. He's saying, you know, we could have demanded a few things. We could have demanded a little from you. And what I'm getting from this text is... He chose to demand nothing from them. I, I don't even think Paul took any money or food from them. I think he did this journey of the Thessalonians all on his own, and they worked hard to do it. Now, let me give you a little, let me give you a little, um, I want to read to you some words out of an ancient Christian manual. Okay. In the very first century, at the end, towards the end of the first century, so within a few decades after Paul and the apostles had lived and taught, there was a, a book that was written, and it was called in the Greek the Didache. Okay, I don't have my board up here since they remodeled the room for Christmas, but I would it's been D I D A C H E Didache. Okay, or Didache, some people say. I, I think it's Didache. Okay. And that means it's titled The Teachings of the Apostles. You could actually go buy it as a book. You can look it up online. It's an ancient document. You can read it. But it functions like an early church manual. Okay. Teaching the, the showing the teachings apparently of the apostles, that the apostles themselves, this is the way they ran their ministries, and this is how they handed it down to their successors, like Timothy and Silvanus, people that are accompanying Paul. They were taught to do ministry this way. I just want to read you a little bit out of it as pertains this whole idea of Paul's not wanting to be a burden to them. And what are what are the rights of them as apostles and ministers of the gospel? Here's what, here's what the Didache says, the Didache. Let every apostle that comes unto you be received as the Lord. That's a pretty heavy statement right there. In other words, when an apostle comes to you, you would receive him just like you're receiving Jesus. So you need to treat him with pretty great respect, right? That's what he's saying here, with, with love and honor and respect. Continuing on, it says, And he shall stay, he, the apostle, shall stay one day, and if need be, the next also. But if he stay three days, he is a false prophet. Interesting. Meaning he's coming to your community like I'm a, I'm coming to your home. I mean, there's no hotels, right? There, there's no hotels in first century world, in that ancient world. People, when it says, you know, like Jesus was, when, they, when Mary and Joseph, there was no room at the inn. Well, what was the inn? It wasn't a hotel, okay? Most likely a, a big home of someone's who would maybe let people stay in rooms, especially relatives and things like that. So that word in is a little deceiving in our common understanding of the word. So when he, an apostle comes to you, he's going to ask to stay. He needs to stay with somebody in the church, right? So he's saying if he stay one day, maybe two, but if he stays three, he's a false prophet. 
guy's trying to mooch off of you. <laughs> so he's setting up some, the, 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 the teachings of the apostles, had some, they had some rules. They had some reasons for what they did. It goes further here. And when the apostle goes forth, let him take nothing save bread till he reaches lodging. In other words, when he goes on his, when he leaves you, don't let him take any, he's not going to take any money from you, just bread. I mean, he needs provisions, that man's got to eat. And then he goes on and says, till he reaches his next lodging. But if he asks for money, he's a false prophet. Did you hear that? If he asks for money, he's a false prophet. Wow. Pretty tough, pretty tough rules to be an apostle. Now we're starting to get a glimpse in the life. At one point, Paul, I think it's in the Corinthian, one of the Corinthian letters, he says, uh, you know, we, we live a dog's life. I mean, the apostle's life is hard. You can kind of get a picture of it. We, we kind of sometimes think of them as these glorified, important heads of the church, these big bishops with their stately positions. They led a dog's life is what they led. You know, going from place to place with no place to hang their hats and, and absolutely no provisions except for what the food the people could feed them, no salaries from the church. That's something? I think of them as wearing rags and so on. You probably were. Probably were. I mean, dusty old garments yeah. that are worn out. They didn't take a suitcase with them. <laughs> you know, maybe a knapsack. Maybe an extra, you know, Jesus always said, if you have two tunics, give one away. So they're probably not carrying a lot of extra clothes with them. Uh, he goes on. The More of the teaching here. No prophet, no prophet that ordereth a table in the spirit shall eat of it, else he is a false prophet. No, let me read that again. No prophet that ordereth a table in the spirit shall eat of it, else he is a false prophet. So there's a sense in which they can't just sit there and order up, you know, provisions and food and then just take it all for themselves, that sort of thing. Uh, if that, if he that, if he that cometh by is a passerby, succor him as far as you can. In other words, if he's just passing through, give him favor, be kind to him, you know, as much as you can. But he shall not abide with you longer than two or three days unless there be a necessity. But if he be minded to settle among you and be a craftsman, then let him work and eat. Now, I'm telling you, I think Paul was in Thessal Thessalonica longer than just two days okay, to get that church established and to do that ministry. So, I'm sure, he's, tell, he's telling them right here, you remember how hard we worked. We were not a burden to you. They earned their own keep. They earned their own food. They earned their own living. So can you imagine him maybe staying with some people he didn't have anywhere to, they didn't just go rent an apartment, they didn't do this, they're staying with people in the church in their homes, and he's going out a day and night, him and Paul and Sylvanus, Timothy, and Paul, they're, they're working. They're, they're making it. We know that from his other writings, Paul was a tent maker. Literally. Made tents. Oh, wow. And, you know, probably sold them, used the money, brought it back to that family. Here's some extra money to buy provisions with. You know, you're having to feed us as long with them. It's a pretty honorable ministry, isn't it? So, in fact, it's just, it boggles the mind when we think about the traveling, uh, not the traveling anymore, but you don't have to travel anymore. You just start a radio program or a television program or you know, you're know you over the world by the airwaves, which they couldn't do then. But it boggles the mind when you compare that to the typical TV evangelist, you know, whose shows, I won't mention any names, are primarily all driven to get money. I mean, totally the opposite of the first century Christian apostolic ministry. It's amazing, isn't it? Let's see if there's any more for us here. So if he settles there and he's a craftsman, let him work and eat. But if he has no trade, according to your understanding, 
Provide that he shall not live idle among you, being a Christian. Okay, so if he has no trade, so that might be a guy like me. Okay, let's say I was a first century apostle like Paul. I'm not very good at about anything except standing up here preaching and teaching. You know, I, I'm not a tradesman. I can't make tents. I can't work on cars or whatever. You know, then they wouldn't have had cars. I would have had a hard time. Not a blacksmith, not a craftsman. I'm not a carpenter. I would have had a hard time. I might be that category. So what does it say they do with a guy like that? He's So we'll teach him something, in other words. If he will not be able to, he said, but if he has no trade, according to your understanding, then provide that he shall not live idle. In other words, give him something to do. You cook. I could cook, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) So I'd be the cook. Give him something to do. Just don't let him be idle. You know what that reminds me of? Reminds me of, I hear my mother. Idle hands. There you go, or the yeah. devil's player. You can finish it for me. Idle hands are the devil's workshop or the devil's playground. You know, uh, that that's just that's as old as the first century, right there. That saying. Uh, but if he will not do this, and here's the here's here's how it ends. This portion of this teaching. But if he will not do this, I mean whatever you find for him to do. If he will not even do that, then he's a Christ monger. <laughs> That is not a good title, okay? <laughs> it has Jesus' name in it. It's a Christ monger, but it's not a good title, okay? He's really mooching off you in the name of Christ, is what it says. Beware of such men. Wow. That's first century teachings of the 12 apostles. It's recorded as their teachings, things that they taught. They weren't written down. They weren't the authors of the book. Somebody wrote it down over the ensuing couple of decades after So by the end of the first century, there is this document, this scroll called the Didache. And it's the teachings of the Twelve. And it it goes further. It's a fascinating, absolutely fascinating uh, book. You could read, if you get it out and read it, you're going to start asking your own church and your own pastor, why don't we do things like this? Why, Why don't we do things like that? I mean, it teaches you to... Always baptize in cold running water. I'm actually kind of thankful we don't do that. <laughs> I was baptized in cold running water. It was called the Jordan River, and man, was it cold. <laughs> but uh, they also baptized them naked, and I'm glad we don't do that anymore. Um, they, they baptized them. Uh, it, it gives instructions, and if you don't have that, then do this. And if you don't, it says always immerse them. But if you don't have that, do this. I mean, it really gets it functions as a good church manual. It tells exactly how to celebrate the Lord's Supper and what to say and what to do. It says it talks about anointing people with oil as a seal of the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's a lot of things that have kind of fallen by the wayside over 2,000 years of, of change in churches. So we want to talk about authentic Christianity. Go read the Didache. Pretty they, pretty authentic. You think they picked that up by following Jesus? Absolutely. Jesus this is what this, so. this is what the, the Jesus taught the disciples. That's right. And remember what Jesus said in our study, the Gospel of John, when he said, "You can't understand everything I'm going to tell you. I've got a lot more to tell you. But I'll I'll ask the Father and He'll send you the Holy Spirit, and then He will bring all truth to your minds. So it is. It's the teachings of Christ through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit." that the apostles really set in place the foundations of the Christian faith. So much so that in uh, we'll hear we'll hear the in the second Thessalonian letter, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but in Second Thessalonians chapter two, Paul's gonna say, pay attention to the traditions that we taught you. We meaning apostles, not just him. Pay attention to the traditions we taught you, whether by letter or by word. So not everything was written down. There were traditions that these apostles and things that we see uh, were written down that they shared and that they used to build the faith and to teach the teach the people the early early faith. Well, okay, let me move on just a little bit from there. I, I wanted to read that for you because I wanted you to get a real vision of how these 
These things that Paul's being accused of by whoever's causing all the problems in this Thessalonian church, they're just baseless. They're baseless. There's no way he would have done any of those things. And so he's reminding them of that. You guys know full well, I wasn't like that. We weren't like that. In fact, and as he says in in verse uh, 7, he says, we were just the opposite. In verse 7, he says, we were actually like a nurse mothering a child. In this one very own chapter right here, he's going to use several different metaphors. It's fascinating to listen to Paul teach. He's going to use a metaphor of a nurse, a mother, a father, a child. He's, he uses lots of metaphors, kind of mixes his metaphors. Makes them, makes them all work beautifully. This is We're like a gentle, we're like a nurse taking care of a child. Where we're gentle among you. We were being so affectionately desirous of you that we were ready to share not just the gospel, but our very lives. What is Paul saying to them? He's saying, we loved you. We loved you so much, we were ready to give our lives for you. So don't believe all these erroneous lies and things. They're trying to just tear the church apart. This how, You remember, you know how much we loved you. And, and then in verse 9 through uh, 12, he, he's reminding them of that toil and labor. I've kind of mentioned that already. But he says in verse 10, you are witnesses. He's calling them to account now. You're witnesses. You're the testimony for how we really ministered there. You're witnesses that our ministry, and he, he says his ministry was a, a triune ministry. He says it was holy, and it was righteous, and it was blameless. That's what he says right there in verse 10. How holy how righteous and how blameless was our behavior to you, believers. So what, what do we take from those three words? Well, holy, what does holy mean? If we try to talk about the word holy, when they heard that word, what did that mean, that it was a holy ministry? Spirit-filled, godly. Those are some of the words we think of. Devout. What's that? Without fault. Without fault. Because that would be the blameless word, without fault. But holy, remember what holy is. The word holy, literally translated, would mean something that is set apart for sacred use. Something that is set apart for sacred use. Okay? So Paul is saying our ministry was set apart. It was holy. It was for no other purpose than to glorify God, than to glorify God, made it holy. It was righteous, meaning it was right. It was given by God. Right. If something is righteous, it is right. It is in right standing. It is right with God's teaching. It, it is absolutely right. We might use the word, we might substitute a word there. We might say it was orthodox. Okay. The word orthodox means to be right, right teaching, right worship, right way to glory, glorify God. And, and then he says it was blameless. Okay, So in other words, without fault. Now, is he saying we were perfect, we never made a mistake while we were there? He's not saying that. Because to be blameless is not necessarily to be perfect. But it means to be without fault, without intentional fault. And that's a very important word when we begin to study the concepts of holiness. Paul uses that word. In, the, in, in chapter 5, I don't want to get ahead of myself again. I do that a lot because I'm giving you the big picture of the book. But chapter 5, he's going to use that word blameless again. It's going to be really important as concerns the idea of being led by the Spirit and sanctified, uh, holy. But that'll be a lesson for chapter 5. In, verse, um, in yes. chapter 1, verse 5, he says, You know we lived among you for your sake. Yeah. Not... Not, not for their, our sake. Not for not for his own sake. Right. It was for their sake. Yeah. So, it it kind of reminds me of today of a mission trip. People go somewhere to enhance the lives of others, work there. Right. They're there for a while and then they leave. But their time there is to be spent 
helping. That's a good analogy. And they're there to live among them, right? right? You go When you go on a mission trip, you live with them, don't you? They put you up. They, they help you. They feed you. And you work for that food. You're not idle. And you're among them. It's for their sake, not for your sake. Although, whenever you go on a mission trip and you come home, you feel very blessed. I mean, you do get more. You feel like you get more than, than you gave, really. But, but you went with the intention of giving. I think, I think you're absolutely right there. It's a good analogy, the mission trip analogy. Um, because that's what they were on. Paul was on a mission. The apostles were on a mission. They were on a mission to spread the gospel, the kingdom of God. And he says, uh, you know how, uh, verse 11, you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. Okay, he's using a lot of uh, directives there. We, and we, uh, we exhorted, what does that mean? To exhort somebody, what does it mean? To exhort is to uh, to. To call out, to, 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 bring, to bring forth, to preach, in other words, is an exhortation. Preaching is an exhortation. So we preached to you, we called you out, we told you what things should be like. We, uh, he says we encouraged you. Okay, So they're preaching. If they exhorted them, they weren't just... Sometimes exhortation is always, isn't always encouraging, especially when it's calling out the sin in our life. That can feel a little condemning. That can feel convicting, hopefully, by the Holy Spirit if we're listening. But that's all a part of exhortation, all a part of preaching, the truth. You know, it doesn't always feel good. We exhorted you, but we also encouraged you, making note of the very positiveness. We encouraged you about the love of God and how he does love you and how he does forgive you. But then he also says, we charged you. What do you think he meant by that? We charged you. Somebody gives you a charge. What does that mean? A commission to go and do it. A commission to go and do it. That's right. Now go and do likewise. We gave you a charge. Don't just soak in this gospel. Don't just relish your own salvation. Don't just think, oh, wow, now I've got it made and this feels good and I'm saved. Hallelujah. No. Go and do likewise. Remember the theme we get, we ended that first chapter with. We talked about it last week. A church cannot just receive, a people of God cannot just receive the gospel. They must live and share the gospel. Okay, it can't be just all one way. And so lead a, gospel, lead a life, the charge is to lead a life worthy of God. Worthy of God. How do you lead a life worthy of God? How many people here feel you're leading your life worthy of God? Well, our humility keeps our hand down. Hopefully, because I got to be honest with you. I, mean, I think when we start feeling like, well, we're leading our life worthy of God, we're not. Okay, but yet there's that charge. That charge—that's the—I don't know what to call it. There's an angst there. Okay, we know what the charge is. We just know we continually fail. But the beauty is not in the—the the beauty is not in the success. The beauty is in the trying. I don't know if that makes sense or not. The beauty is in trying to live the spirit-filled life by God's power, not by our power. And in that trying, any success that comes, he gets all the glory. It's not of us. Okay? We're just the tool. We're not the craftsman. He is. People's lives are saved. People's lives are transformed. People's lives are changed by our ministry or our words or our efforts or our doings or our missions. It's all his glory, not ours. Because we're nothing of ourselves. Anything we have, any gift we have, any skill we have, it's all from him. It's all a gift. It's all a spiritual gift, right? So, to God be the glory. Absolutely. That's basically what he's saying. Lead a life worthy of God that glorifies God. That, And then he said who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Make no mistake about it. The Apostle Paul is teaching these Thessalonians and reminding them, you are now in the kingdom. 
The concept of the kingdom, that's one we don't dwell enough on. The kingdom of God. Jesus spoke so often about the kingdom of God. And we need to keep that in mind. Because sometimes modern evangelical preaching just becomes about what they think is just sharing the gospel as a word of salvation to be saved. No. That's incomplete. A total complete sharing of the gospel is to share that God has called us into his kingdom. And in his kingdom, there is salvation. There is life and there is joy and there is peace. Peace in our soul, not always peace in our surroundings. But that's, this is the beauty of the kingdom of God. And they've been called into the kingdom and he wants them to remember that. And in the kingdom, this is where there is glory. So, he, uh, you know, he uses in the beginning, he says, here's all these things people accused us of. And then he counters that by reminding them of all the things that they actually did there in front of them. Uh, Paul really, when you think of the things that he that we just finished talking about that he actually did by being gentle among them, by yearning to love them, to share the good news with them, to share their very lives with them, uh, to, to work night and day to not be a burden, to work reverently, righteously, blamelessly, all of these things. All of those things are a model for us of pastoral care, of ministry in the church. That's what I meant by in our, in our five-fold, five-fold things that we kind of see a model for in the books of First and Second Thessalonians. We're now in the chapter that's teaching. This is what the church is supposed to look like. This is what pastors are supposed to look like. This is what the leaders and the people are supposed to look like. This, this model, this beautiful model of loving, self-sacrificing, giving, care, working, uh, not just uh, taking. So that, that's, that's really important for us to see there. I think so. Now he's going to switch a little bit in verse 13 as we kind of work through the, the second part of that chapter. We'll enter into that a little bit here. Um, he's going to talk a little bit about the integrity of this pastor or this preacher that, that he was among them and that we can take from that. Uh, there is, um, I, I think there was actually a. Uh, a note I wanted to read to you before I jump into the verse 13. I wanted to read to you some words, because these are powerful words that I think fit real well. I just noticed it in my notes here. These are some words from uh, uh, early, one of the very earliest bishops in the early church. His name was Ignatius. You've heard the name Ignatius, Saint Ignatius of Antioch. Okay, He was a direct disciple of the Apostle John. He lived up in Syria, in Antioch, in that area. He became a leader of the church, a bishop of the church. And he wrote a lot of letters. They didn't make it into the New Testament, but they're great letters. And we learn a lot about life in the early church from his letters. One of the letters he wrote was a letter... <laughs> it's listening to you. It's speaking to me. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, it's hearing me. It's going to look up Ignatius for us. Yeah, there we go. Sorry. So one of his letters was a letter to the church in Rome because Ignatius was being persecuted. He was arrested for his teaching of the gospel, and he was being persecuted. And he, like Paul, was going to Rome in order to be tried. Okay? And... On his way, he writes letters to a lot of different churches. And one in his letter to the Romans, I, I think this parallels this teaching of Paul to give self-sacrificially to the people and not take anything from them, not demand his own rights, but to give. And I want you to hear it, because Ignatius became a martyr for the faith, one of the early Christian martyrs. Listen to his words. He says, since God has answered my prayer to see you godly people, I have proceeded to ask for more. I mean, it is as a prisoner for Christ Jesus that I hope to greet you. He's talking to you people in Rome. Okay? 
since God has answered my, in other words, since God's answered my prayer to come see you godly people in Rome, the church in Rome, I'm going to ask for even more. I'm going to ask that I get to come see you as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. I hope to greet you, if indeed it be God's will, that I should deserve to meet my end. Listen to that again. He says, I mean it is as a prisoner for Christ Jesus that I hope to greet you, if indeed it be God's will that I should deserve to meet my end. Things are off to a good start. May I have the good fortune to meet my fate without interference. Okay, he knows he's being sent to Rome. He knows they're not going to side with him. He knows he's going to be convicted and guilty uh, because he doesn't say Caesar is Lord. And he knows he's going to die, probably eaten by lions or whatever they did that week. And he says, I'm asking, I'm praying, he says, that I have the good fortune to meet my fate without interference. What I fear is your generosity, which may prove detrimental to me. For you can easily do what you want to, whereas it is hard for me to get to God unless you leave me alone. He's afraid that they're going to interfere. They're going to stand up for him. They're going to use some of their influence, some of the influential people in the Roman church. You know, there's people that have secretly become Christians everywhere, and maybe they could get this trial stopped. Maybe they could save him. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't do that for me. He says, it's going to be hard for me to get to God unless you leave me alone. I do not want you to please men, but to please God. To please God. Just as you are doing. For I shall never again have such a chance to get to God. Nor can you, if you keep quiet, get credit for a finer deed. Nor can you, if you... Keep quiet and get credit for a finer deed. For if you quietly let me alone, people will see in me God's word. But if you are enamored of my mere bodily presence, I shall, on the contrary, be a meaningless noise. Grant me no more than to be a sacrifice for God while there is an altar at hand. Wow. St. Ignatius of Antioch, praying, whatever you do, don't try to please me and please others by getting me off of the hook. I am going to die for Christ. He doesn't want them to expose themselves. He doesn't want to do that, no. But he mostly wants them not to please him. They would be pleasing God if they let him die. Now, do we think that way? No. No, we don't. We're going to hire you the best defense lawyer we can. You know, that's what we think, right? We're going to, we're, you know, this is unjust. We're going to save you. No. That whole thought is so foreign to us today. Yes. I'm assuming that he's learned from God that his value is over. Right. Because he's going to die. Otherwise, he could keep on preaching and still continue serving God. So I think that's very... God told him, hey, you're done or something. You know, Dennis, I think that's a very good comment. I think you're right. When we see in these martyrs, you know, look, look at Paul. The night, when, when they came in to make a fuss in Thessalonica and the riot started, he left, didn't he? It wasn't time for him to die yet. Eventually, we know he'll hear from God, and he'll know when it's time to die that martyr's death. And apparently, Ignatius knows it's time. I think you're absolutely right. And, and uh, boy, wow, that, that's, that's a closeness. That's a life in relationship with God through Christ Jesus that is so amazing to know when it's time and when it isn't. Wow. Wow. There's a lot we can learn from studying. That's why I always love to use this book that has all these ancient early uh, church martyrs and fathers to learn from. Okay, so I wanted to share that with you because it's a great parallel to the life of the Apostle Paul. So now let's look at the second part of this chapter. In verse 13, he says, We're thanking God constantly for you because you rec- when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as the word of God. Okay, so this is the job of every preacher. The job of every preacher is to preach in such a way that you do not hear him or her. You hear God. Mm 
and that is my fervent prayer in this Bible study, that you do not walk out of here and say, oh, Brad's such a good teacher. Oh, Brad does this, Brad does this. No, 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 no. That you encounter the living God through my teachings. If all you do is rave about me, then you're not helped and I'm not helped. You're not transformed and I deserve to be scolded by God. <laughs> okay, so, so I, I see that. Remember our prayer. What does our prayer say? Illumine our hearts. In other words, shine light on them. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Not open our hearts that we may really take to heart what Brad says. <coughs> your gospel teachings are not my gospel teachings. I'm just the mouthpiece. Okay? But you being willing and being an open vessel is what makes you unique and so wonderful that God uses it's you. No it's no more unique than you, his. though. It's for his glory. But it's no more unique than you because you know who's around you? People yes. that want to hear from you. Yes. Every single one you of us. You have helped me open up. Every single one of us has people around us that they could hear from us the mm-hmm. same way if, we, if they see Christ in us. The song that uh, Pastor Brent, when he was in Wichita, had his friend... Uh, Michael O'Brien sing and wrote it and then played it for us here as he sang it and it became very often played and sung. Remember what, you know where I'm going? Christ in me Mm -hmm. is all I want to be. You you know, know it's hard to quote it if you don't sing it, right? Christ in me is all I want to be solely you in everything I do Cleanse me today, mold me like the potter's clay, free to be Christ in me. The most important line in that song is Christ in me. We are to be Christ. This is what I love about the Apostle Paul. You know, in, in his writing, you know, we in his writings, he even admits, I'm not even a good preacher, he says. I can't tell you chapter and verse. I just know it's in there somewhere. He says, I came to you with now powerful speech, but but yet in a demonstration of the the power of God. What do we look for in preachers and pastors today? By golly, they better be good, good, good sounding. They better be good, powerful, this and that. You know, that's not a biblical model. (laughs) The biblical model is the heart heart okay and because when we're listening with the heart and they're preaching with the heart now god transforms okay otherwise it's just fluff anyone can give a good speech that's why i say any preacher can preach a good sermon but can any preacher see lives transformed through their preaching no not unless it's truly genuine not unless it's truly genuine and given by the Holy Spirit and not by their own prowess or ability. Uh, I feel strongly about that because I fear the church in our world today is missing that. We are desperately in need of spirit-filled, apostolically anointed preachers of the word who exhort people to leave a life of sin and to live a life of holiness. And that's just not being done enough in our world. So, we need revival, don't we? We need renewal. Okay, so, he goes on. And he commends them. In these last few verses of this chapter, he's really commending them. He's saying that you yourselves, you received the word as God's word, not our word. That's a good thing. Verse 14, you even became imitators of the churches of God. Remember in chapter 1, Paul said... We use that that uh, mimetis, that Greek word to mimic, to imitate. Paul said, imitate me. It's okay, imitate me, because he's confident that he's trying to imitate Christ, so they can imitate him. And he's saying here, you imitated the churches in Jerusalem, in Judea. Well, how did they imitate the churches in Jerusalem and Judea? 
He's, say, he's commending them that they imitated the churches of God in Jerusalem and Judea. How did they? What Do we understand what he's commending them for? They tried to spread the word too? Yeah. They, tried, they did spread the word amongst great persecution. Remember the churches in Jerusalem and Judea, and really all of Israel, they, they met great opposition because they weren't Jewish enough. By the way they lived. The church, that's right. The church was born as a part of Judaism. The first Christians were all Jews. Everything about them was Jewish. They went to the synagogue. They did everything the way they always had. They just believed Messiah had come. And so then they started getting together to worship Messiah on the day after the synagogue services, on the day of the resurrection on Sunday. And they just became so different, you know, and eventually, when they really stopped the Mosaic Law, you know, and started eating uh, whatever they wanted, <laughs> boy, then it really got bad. The persecution, you guys are unclean, you guys are not, you know. So he's saying, you guys imitated those churches. So how did they do that? Well, here they were, brand new church, right in the middle of pagan Greece, and a bunch of Jews that live in Greece. And what's the first thing that happens to them when they start a church? Persecution, persecution, riots even. And they didn't give up. They didn't give up. That's why Paul had sent uh, Timothy. I need to know, did they give up? Uh, we left in it. Can you imagine what Paul's thinking? Man, can, he's talking to Sylvanus and Timothy going, can you believe how bad it was? That riot just about burnt the city down. I mean, you can hear them kind of thinking, well, I hope the church made it. I hope they made it. I hope they're still hanging in there. I hope they're still worshiping. I hope they're still gathering. We've got to go back and find out. He said that in this chapter over and over. I want to go back. But Satan hindered us. Uh, and, and it hindered me. He says that in the last few verses. He says in verse 18, We wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, I wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. We don't know how. He doesn't tell us how. But something providentially... <laughs> Uh, in, in, in God's big plan, Satan was allowed to hinder Paul so that he couldn't go back when he wanted to go back. Paul didn't understand why. They don't understand why. But that's what happened. And so he sent Timothy. Finally, he got Timothy there, and Timothy brought back the good news. They're still making it. Um, and he says, you were, uh, you know, you were mimicking or imitating the churches in Judea uh, who suffered from their own countrymen. And you're, you're suffering from your own countrymen. I mean, those people in Judea, they killed not only the Lord Jesus, they killed the prophets, and they were, drove us out. Uh, and, and in all of that, it says they displease God, and they oppose all men by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. Because you see, now Paul is taking the message into the Gentile world. He's in Greece, Macedonia. Remember, that was a call from God. Go to Macedonia. That's the heart of the Gentile world. Thessalonica, like the second, almost capital of the world, but it, it became the second city of the, 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 the capital of the empire. And it's an important area. Well, the Jews would have never done that. See, here's the fact. The fact is, perhaps the biggest indictment on the Jewish people of Jesus' day was that they had not realized their calling from God all along as God's chosen people was to be chosen to serve, not chosen for privilege. Because by the time of Jesus' day, it was contemporary Jewish thought that they were the privileged of the world. Nobody else was saved. You want okay? You want to be saved? Okay, okay you want to be saved? Come on, I'll let you in, but you got to become Jewish. That's the way they thought. You could convert to Judaism and be saved because you became part of God's chosen. But nobody outside of Judaism was going to be saved because they were God's chosen people. That's wrong. That's not. That's not what the Old Testament even taught. But that's the way pride and arrogance and sin warps our thinking. You know what I'm saying? And, and that's displeasing to God because God's plan was always to save everyone. Still is. 
God's plan is still to save everyone. He knows everyone won't respond, but his plan is to save everyone. Okay? And, and it's still our goal is to save everyone, to share the gospel with everyone, to love everyone as Jesus would love them. And to know, he says, he kind of closes this whole thought in verse 19 by saying, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Remember, every chapter closes with a thought about Jesus' second coming. It's a very eschatological letter. Every single chapter closes with a thought about Jesus. Now, he didn't know he was closing a chapter, okay? We, chapters and verses weren't part of his original letter, but we speak in those terms. In other words, there's five chapters, we, five times, at least five times, he's saying in there at the end of what we, Jesus is coming again. And he's saying, what is our hope when Jesus comes again? What's our joy? What's our crown? It's not that we believed. It's that you believe. You're our joy. You're our crown. You see? You, you, if they got anything to brag about when they get to heaven, when Jesus comes again, it's that they loved other people into the kingdom. Yeah. That's the only thing that matters. That's really the only thing that matters. They won't be able to boast about how beautiful their temples were or how beautiful their churches were because they weren't even meeting in beautiful temples and churches. <laughs> they were. That didn't happen until the 4th century when Christianity became approved by the Roman Empire. They, they, they had nothing to brag about. They were martyrs. They were living a dog's life. They were poor. Their life was hard. They didn't preach to get rich. They were bivocational if there ever was anybody bivocational. Um, but they could boast in one thing, you're our joy and you're our crown because you believed the gospel. You too. I mean, that's a beautiful thought. I, I just find so much beauty in there. Um, let's see, I had another note I wanted to read to you here. Let's see if I can find it. Um, this is from uh, St. John Chrysostom. Uh, one of their use, I use him a lot. He's from the early bishop of the Constantinople in the fourth century, um, talking about this idea of the hardships that permitted, that were permitted for the sake of future reward. He says this: You too, when you are about to perform any duty for God, expect manifold dangers, punishments deaths. Wow. Don't be surprised or disturbed if such things happen. For it is said, quote, my son, if you come to serve the Lord, prepare your soul for temptation. End quote. That's from Ecclesiasticus. For surely no one choosing to fight expects to carry off the crown without wounds. And you, therefore, who have decided to wage full combat with the devil, do not think to pursue such a life without danger, expecting luxury instead. Wow. Now he goes on. God has not pledged to you his recompense and promise for this life. These splendid things await in the future life. Be glad and rejoice then, if when you have yourself done any good action, you receive evil in return, inasmuch as your suffering is the source of higher recompense. <laughs> Love that. Then he refers to Paul. He goes on, he says, We see Paul in prison, yes, even in chains, instructing and initiating. He does the very same in a court of, injust of justice, in shipwreck, in tempest, in a thousand dangers. You also imitate these saints as long as you are able continue in your good works. This was, uh, this was John preaching, St. John Chrysostom preaching to his church back in Constantinople in the 4th century. What is he saying? I think he's saying something that we can all take to heart. Just because, especially because, not just because, especially because we have accepted the call to serve Christ, we can expect evil and danger 
and things thrown at us. Now, it doesn't feel that way sometimes because we have lived through, in America, in the 20th century, the 20th century America is probably the, I know I know we're in the 21st century, but the, I'm talking about the 20th century. 20th century America was probably the most blessed time for Christians. It seemed like all our neighbors were, everybody, I mean, it was just, the whole century, it seems like you could just take a snapshot of the 1950s and say, you know, I know there was world wars, two world wars, there was lots of horror and things like that. But I'm just talking about life for Christians in America it was good in the 20th century. It was good in the 20th century. Got, and I think the church got fat and lazy. That's what I think. I think the church got fat and lazy and missed that. The, the words of Jesus himself who said, blessed are you when people insult you and harm you and do all say all kinds of evil things about you on account of me. Mm-hmm. Nobody was doing that to us because we were just Christians. It didn't matter whether you're, what kind of Christian you were. You're just, it was a blessed thing. But now we're, things, the tide's turning. doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at the politics of the day and see Christianity is not in favor right now. And it is 12.05 by the clock on the wall. I'm sorry, I get going, and I just didn't realize we were running late. But uh, that we, we finished Chapter 2 in one day. How about that? So next week, Chapter 3, we'll start in on it. Let's, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the beautiful reminder of the cost of our faith, our redemption, and of our discipleship. Help us by your grace to live this holy life. In Jesus' strong name we pray, your Son, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever and under ages of ages. Amen. Well, that's all we have time for today. And I want to thank you again for listening in. I hope that our time together has been a blessing to you. While you're here, why not take a moment to add a comment or perhaps ask a question? You know, Forming the Spirit Within is a listener-supported ministry, and I really appreciate your feedback and your support. If you'd like more information on how to be a part of this ministry, you can find it online at bradreillyministries.org. Again, thanks for listening and spending the time with us today, and may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you as He forms His Spirit within you.